Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you. My name is Trev. I'm also one of the pastors here um, at Urban Grace, and it's my great privilege to deliver God's Word uh, to us, not just to you, but to us this morning. We're in a series on faith and work, and this is not uh, to be confused with faith and works, as some people would probably want to say, um, as works is not a very good term to define sometimes, uh, for just everything. And, and the more we looked at this issue of work and works and what that looks like, uh, I realized it can be a very complicated issue. Uh, for some of you, when you think of the word work, uh, you can actually say, that's my experience. What, what that video was is my experience, which is why I hate work or hate the idea of work. But for some of you, you're like, I don't get paid for my work and raising children seems like a lot of work. And so when I finished work, I go home and I got more work to do. And what does this actually look like? And so we've spent a couple weeks doing this, actually, uh, defining this whole issue of work. Uh, because it's a big question for us. I, talking, I was talking with someone this morning. I said, yes, 70% of his life is in work. I, th I think that's fair to say, the way we're going to define work, that the majority of our life is spent understanding this. And so we came up with this definition of what work actually is, and we found in the Bible. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 in your app or in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible uh, that you can use for the morning? And if that's your first Bible, please keep it. Uh, we'd like you to have that. You're going to need it again and again. We have a habit here of opening up the Bible each week to see what God's Word has to say to us and for us. And so this whole idea of work and this definition of work, work is what we do and, and it's a working definition. See what I just did there? It's a working definition. Um, and I would add to this, work is what we produce to help humanity thrive or flourish. That's kind of what uh, we've arrived at after kind of looking at this fairly significantly. And this is over the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. The story of God begins very, very good in chapter 1 and 2, which is really like two different camera angles of the same story. Uh, we have God creating all things, including male and female and all living creatures and, and basically the raw materials of culture. Uh, and He gives people this mandate to produce to multiply, to take the raw materials of culture and do something with it to help all of humanity thrive. And this happens before anything goes bad. It's so important to understand because some of us think that this problem with work, this understanding of work, is a result of God penalizing us for our sin. But that's not true. Work originally was not a penalty, it was a gift. Work was not given to us as a way to make, I will make you people suffer, so I will create work. No, that's not how it went. God said, I will create a world in which I want you to participate with me. In fact, I will allow you to steward and take the raw materials of culture and do something with this and make humanity thrive. But it goes bad very fast. And so this morning, we're going to look at the third week, which builds upon uh, the last two weeks, uh, I, I took basically two 45-minute uh, sermons to come up with that definition there. So if you think I'm really efficient in my work, uh, I think you're wrong. 
Um, it takes a while to a- arrive there. Uh, but we've looked at basically what is work, what's right about work. And today we're going to look at what's wrong with work because most of our experience is not good when it comes to work, no matter what that is. No matter whether we're stay-at-home spouse, mom, dad, whether we love our jobs, whether we hate our jobs, hate our work, we hate the things that we volunteer with, we, everything seems against us. And so some of you have been waiting for this particular message because you're like, that sounds more like my experience. And so what we're going to do this morning is talk about how work really, although it was created good, becomes difficult very fast in the story of God. But then I also want to talk, not only is that kind of going wrong with work, but work then can be turned or used into something that it's not supposed to be used for, turned into, and that is work becomes idolatry. We'll get into the definition of idolatry and what an idol is later, but a good gift, and this is what idolatry is, a good gift is something that's very good that becomes ultimate instead of just a gift. This happens at Christmas time all the time, right? That the gift becomes more important than the person giving the gift. One of my least favorite things about Christmas is when you, as a parent, you pour your heart into all these great gifts and then your kids are like, so what else do we have? We're like, I want to take away everything right now because you clearly don't understand what kind of giver gave you these gifts. You can tell I'm very, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very good person, eh? Can't you tell? And then we want to talk about not those negative things because if I give you that, I'm probably telling something that you already know and you'll leave here discouraged and not able to celebrate um, the gift that even the Christmas season is. And so I want to talk about how Jesus then doesn't reverse everything, but he begins. Jesus is really the only one capable of taking what we've done with work and what has happened to work and reversing it. And so we're going to look at those three things this morning. So the first thing uh, we got to look at is work becomes difficult. Have you ever wondered that? Ever wondered why Monday morning is difficult? I don't know. Is anyone like, I love Monday mornings because I feel groggy and really inefficient, right? Monday morning has become this sort of thing for the average work week. Perhaps you're on shift work. So it's like first thing in the afternoon and you, and you start in, and you're like, oh, there's something not quite right about the way this goes about. Perhaps you spent all week cleaning your home because this is the primary place in which you work, and your children just destroy it. And it feels like all your hard work, right? I remember my mom, hey, I spent the whole day cleaning. Get those dirty boots out of here right now. I worked all day on this house. Get out. So that I can appreciate my work. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I've either been told that or I've felt that. I've seen that. Okay, it doesn't matter where you are. You pour your time and your effort into things and there's just this frustration that you feel. No matter how much you love your job, there's some part of your job that just has this difficulty to it. It's really tiring. It's at times really fruitless. For those who say, I love my job, I say like every part of your job. Well, no, like I don't love when things go wrong in my job or you know what, I could make a little more money at my job or you know, things, 
things could be much more efficient. If I could just get some decent people around me, it would be an even better job or all these kind of questions. And so no matter how much we love our work, no matter how much we say, I am excited to do what God has given me to do. I am excited to make humanity thrive. There's part of us that gets tired and feels fruitless all the time. I believe that the story of God has the answer to this, and it's found in Genesis chapter 3. And so I'm going to go through three verses in particular, but I want to read out the whole thing. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, by the way, you need to underline that in your Bible because that is the constant sermon you will hear from the serpent or from the world. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And I would add, because they felt such great shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said what most men would say. wasn't me. It was the woman who gave me the fruit of the tree. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, no, it wasn't me either. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's break this down for a second. You think that video was depressing. That sounds really depressing if we don't hear some good news at the end of this. But this is where it all goes bad. 
So essentially you have two chapters where everything is good and God makes everything great. Man and woman, he makes them great. First thing man does when he sees woman is sing a song. He makes up a song, thereby declaring everywhere that artists will always get the babe, right? Some of you think that's funny. But ultimately, the way it starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 with the curse of the serpent. And this is where it starts to unravel. And I want to include all parts of this curse because they all, I think all of them have significance. And so why is it important that we look at the curse of the serpent? Because what we see in that curse is that um, essentially because we are first parents and we can say we're, we're legitimate offspring of those first parents at some point, if you go back far enough, At some point, we decided it was more important to listen to the voice of the serpent or Satan. The Bible will actually reinterpret this for us and say that this serpent was just taken on the form of, uh, this, this is just Satan taking on the form of an animal that ends up paying the price for this. He says, because you listen to the voice of, you could say culture, you can say anything not God. That, that's, what, that's what we're supposed to understand. Because you didn't listen to the voice of God, but instead listen to your own voice or the voices that you thought were better, here's what's going to happen. This guy is going to be after you your whole life. And you're going to have to do battle with him. In other words, God is saying to Adam and Eve, our first parents, because you decided to listen to the voice of the serpent you'll always have to hear the voice of the serpent in some way, shape, or form. We see the glimpse of the gospel. Some commentators, some writers uh, of the Bible will say, or sorry, some some commentators on the Bible will say, this is where we first see something called proto-evangelion. I know lots of you are going to use that at lunch today in in your conversations. It means the pre-gospel means God is already showing that something is going to happen. He basically says, yeah, this guy is going to be nipping at your heel all day. But actually it should read, instead of this small, small H, he, it should be capital H, he. He, that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who's coming, the one we sing about at Christmas time, the one we talk about at Christmas time. He's eventually going to be wiped out. So he's going to nip at our heels. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to step on his head. Even in the movie Passion of the Christ, this is depicted. You see this great image in the Passion of the Christ where Jesus is in the garden. He's praying to God the Father. Is this, is this, this, is this the way the story has to go? And this snake slithers in and Jesus comes in and puts his head on the snake. Symbolically saying, one day the snake will no longer be after us. But until Jesus returns, we're going to have bruised heels. This tension of work is going to be within us for all time. And so there's that working against us. We're going to have to deal with that. What else happens? Well, Jesus basically says to the lady specific, he goes, to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And I would say this, I believe, I believe this is still intact. Because I've experienced from a distance what birth is like. And it is not an easy thing. Pregnancy doesn't seem to be all that easy. I mean, we have a lot of ladies who have experienced pregnancies. 
in our church. Pregnancy and non-pregnancy is actually not easy. It's difficult. And even when it goes well and it's healthy, there's pain to this. I've never once heard, you know, oh, how's the pregnancy going? It's the best time of my life. Never been better. Never been better. I've never heard that. Because that's not really the way that it goes. And Jesus said this beautiful thing of multiplying the work that I've given to humanity, a certain portion of humanity is no longer going to be super joyful. There's going to be this bruising of the heel still. This pain that goes on. He's like, you're going to have children. You're going to have children. You're going to reproduce. You're going to be able to do this. You're going to multiply and be fruitful. Yes, but it's going to cost you. And up until recently, it actually costs lots of women their lives. We don't live in a culture where this is common. It's very strange if, if a woman died in the midst of childbirth today. It would be a, a tragedy, but you, all you have to do is go back a hundred years, and this was so common that it costs us. There's pain in this work. It's going to be a struggle. What else does God say? He turns to the man. He's got a lot of words for the man. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So I gave you this mandate to take the raw materials of culture and do something with it, and it just got hard. I don't believe this is actually purely male-specific, honestly. I believe that these, there's parts of these curses that just kind of roll, roll around. It's not like work outside of childbearing is easy for the ladies. But I would say this. I've seen many men struggle with this, in particular. You're going to get food out of this, he says. You're going to eat. You're going to be able to plant. You're going to be able to reproduce. You're going to be able to use the materials of raw materials of culture, and this is going to get done. But when you're busy planting seeds, there's going to be lots of toil to this. It's going to be both tiring and fruitless. And I think this is so important for us to get. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. That's what so many of us do. Even at funerals, we say ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Meaning what started as dust returns to dust. And there's lots of writers in Scripture who would say, is this all there is to this life? Maybe you've been asking that about your work. In particular, is this it? Is this, is this all I'm going to have to show for all my toil and all my work? And God says, you will struggle to scratch out a living. You will struggle. And so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? It means ultimately that work is tiring. I think this is so important for us to get even when it, in terms of what's wrong with work is that the fact that you feel tired, the fact that this exhausts you, the fact that you reach the end of your rope, so to speak, and all of the work that you do it shouldn't necessarily come as an encouragement. It just helps lower your expectations because some of us are like, yeah, I love my work, then why am I so tired? Yeah, I love what I'm doing, yet why does this just, 
just about kill me. I know there are invigorating times in our lives where work is just super exciting, but then, then you have those times, those lulls where you're done and you sit down and you rest and you fall asleep and have a nap, right? Right, if you spend a full work week, you generally don't walk away going, man, I have all the energy I've ever had all week long right now. No, you usually say Friday is here or Saturday night is here or whatever it is for your week and you say, oh, and you're exhausted. And, and God is, is trying to tell us in the original part of the story is to just expect this. You need to expect this in your work. I think it should at least help us lower expectations that we sometimes place on work, like somehow this is supposed to give back to us and just admit that there's just going to be times where this just exhausts us. I think it's amazing how much work we can actually get done in a week, but I think at some point we're constantly reminded of our limitations. And I think it's here in the text. What else do we need to know about this? Well, work feels fruitless and inefficient at times. And again, I'm not really necessarily talking to those of you who are, well, maybe I'm talking to everyone here, yeah. For those of you who are frustrated with the work that you've been called to, you've been frustrated with the way you have to make a living and then the work you have to do on top of it. You might be a single parent and so it seems like your workload is double and you have to take it all, all on yourself. And so there's this frustration or you're, you just don't find a lot of fulfillment in your job because it, it's just like it always feels like you're going nowhere. Maybe that's you this morning. And here's what I would say. Genesis explains that. It doesn't necessarily help you to deal with that, but it explains it. Explains why there's a fruitlessness that you're always going to have to face. There's parts of it. It doesn't matter, right? You can always make a little more money. You never have enough. You could always have better people to work with. You could always have a better work schedule. You could always have an easier job. You could always have something easier and the list could go on and on and on. And I would say this is the result of sin. This is what happens when we choose our way over God's way. This is what happens when we listen to our word over God's word. This is what happens when we listen to the voices of the sermons that are in, in everywhere instead of the sermon of God. This is trust in me. Find fulfillment in me. And so I, that's part of why that video in some ways, even though it may seem like discouraging and it may seem like it's, yeah, kind of a blah video depressing. It reminds us that that is some of our experience and no matter how good we think things are going, it will be some of our experience. And so that's where it really all goes wrong, but that's not the only problem. I'm, I'm going to lay out two problems and there's not going to be a lot of jokes in here really because it's, this can get really discouraging for us because I know some of you right now are feeling this weight of frustration. But even this good gift can, can, can be used wrongly. Again, we're, we're talking about this issue of idolatry, and so that's, that's what we can do with this. We can take this gift of God with this enormously tiring and, and, and fruitless feeling, and we can, we can make it worse by turning our work and what we do into an idol. 
I know some of you are like, I don't understand this whole idol business. Like, I don't really take my work and kneel before it and say, oh, work, you are great, you know, great work. That, that, that's not your uh, maybe understanding of, of what an idol is. But here's a great definition of an idol. I don't think there's anyone better in our contemporary culture that's defining this for us than Tim Keller. I love the way he says it. What is an idol? He says it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. In other words, work can become an idol because we can place all of our importance upon work. We can have our work be so much more important to us than our God. And then the Bible explains that in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says literally everything that you do, whether you eat or you drink, you could add a list of everything to that. It's all for the glory of God. We'll sing about this later. This is about one God who has received the glory. But what we can do as people is we can take a good gift and we can make it an ultimate gift. We can make life about the gift or we can make life about the giver. And what we've done so often is make it about the gift. Right, some of you, you, have you ever had, anyone else had that experience as a Christmas where, where it's more about the gift than the person giving? How strange that is at Christmas, this idea of giving gifts because of generosity turns into this weird trans, transition. Like, oh, I, that person gave me this gift and it was valued at this, so I got to give them a gift so that we're even seems weird that, that it's about that. It's come down to that. But that's what we do all the time with good gifts from God. We are given family or friends, and instead of just seeing them as gifts from God to give us you know, an opportunity to thrive, we make them ultimate. We make them more important than God. This happens all the time. It's, it's a lot easier to make an idol of something that's good than something that's bad. That one's obvious. Like if someone says like, I, you know, I, my, money is my idol. It seems so much easier to see than it's like family is my idol. I live in a, I live in a neighborhood where I, I think family has become the, the centerpiece. And not just family, but kids. I mean, kids have become, in my neighborhood, far more important than the actual marriage that produced the kids. And so I see this up close. I feel this up close. So what does this look like for us? Well, I would say two different ways that it can become more important. If it can become a form of atonement and it can become a form of identity. Those are big Christian words for us to use, right? We don't often use the word atonement, but it's really just... You know, essentially, it's kind of a financial or a criminal justice term. It means to to compensate properly for some wrongdoing. So in other words, if there's wrongdoing that's gone on, like I, I park wrongly in the city, which by the way, never happens. I've never parked wrongly in the city. The city requires me some form of atonement depending on how fast I pay them, Right? my atonement price goes up. If I pay within this, my atonement price is $40. If I wait three days to pay it instead of like three seconds, I think, 
they give you. You know, you pay $50 for your atonement. And if you, you pay it in two months, then you pay $70 in atonement. But here's what I find interesting about work is that work for some of us has become a way of trying to earn our favor with others and with God. That we feel bad about ourselves enough that we work hard at what we do so that we can somehow gain God's attention or gain approval from those who we worship. I can't answer these questions for you. I can only ask them. But I know that personally, actually being a pastor, it's possible for me working as a pastor to be a form of atonement that gets me closer to God. Many people say, oh, you're a pastor, so you must be closer to God than everyone else. Work in office where someone says, yeah, you, you've, got, like, you've, got, like, you've got the red phone to God, right? While the rest of us just have to use satellite phones somewhere. You've got that red thing that's just a me. You're a pastor, so the work you must do must get you closer to God. And you know what? That's not true. But it's amazing how often in my brain I can think of if, if I'm feeling bad about something or I've committed some sort of sin, how if I just work hard, then God will notice and he'll, he'll consider that good atonement. And we're working, we work to try to make ourselves into something that we're not through our work. We say things like, I will show that boss that I'm not worthless. You ever said that in your brain? I'll show them. I'll work my face off. I'll be the best employee ever. And I will earn my way back. And so we've taken this good gift that suddenly has become actually a form of paying, trying to pay God off, so to speak. That's one way I think we can make work into an idol. Another way is work can become a form of identity. This is huge for many of us. And in our culture and in our city, this is so common. Most of the time, when we introduce ourselves, we introduce ourselves on the basis of what we do for our work. Hi, I'm Trevor. I'm a pastor. Very few of us are like, hi, I'm Trevor, or I'm Joe, and I'm a disciple of Jesus, right? It's not really how we introduce ourselves. We say, I'm a whatever. I'm in the health department. I am a student. I'm in management. I am, actually, I'm not in management. I'm a manager. Well, what are we doing there? We're taking the gift that God has given us to do. We're taking a career, the primary way in which we're able to compensate and, and live and help humanity thrive, and it becomes us. And the way we, we, we dress and the way we think and the way the people we hang out, it dictates who we hang out with. Because I can't hang out with these people because they'll make me less than who I am. And I'm a student. I can't, I can't be with those kind of people. I'm a manager. I, I can't be with those kind of people. And so this great gift, this, this thing that we do, this opportunity can suddenly become a form of importance to us that is so important that when it's taken away, we don't know what to do. 
And I always say, the way you can find out if something is really an idol in your life is when it's taken away. And here's the sad part of that. You find out really quick whether you like it or not. Someone takes away your job right now, tomorrow, what do you do? Someone takes away your work and who you get to associate, what happens to your life? I'll tell you what generally happens to us and myself. We lash out in anger. We do exactly what Adam and Eve, hey, it's their fault. It's not my fault. Somebody's got to blame here. Somebody's got to pay for this. Someone's got to atone for this. And so maybe we try to go back to atoning for it ourselves again. So you see how this vicious cycle of everything gone wrong and, and what we've done to take this good gift to turn it into an ultimate gift, it just goes bad. That's why you see people that commit suicide very quickly when they lose their job. They don't have anything to live for. Their work was their identity. Their work was their atonement. You take away the work, no longer can they atone for themselves, no longer do they have an identity. There's nothing left to their life. And so they say, there's nothing left. So I might as well not live. And that's exactly what an idol is. An idol is something that we just simply can't live without. But here is the good news is that you don't have to have your identity in your work. You and I don't have to atone for ourselves, our guilt, our lack. We don't have to if we don't want to. Jesus said, if you trust in me, I will be those things for you. And so I would say Jesus can make right of all this wrong. So far you're like, wow, that's a lot of depression, Trev. Thanks a lot going to take some counseling to get out of this service, but I'm saying you don't need counseling, you just need Jesus. Because that is, that is depressing if there's no good news. Because no amount of atonement will ever work. We sing a song that says, I worked my fingers down to the bone, and nothing I did could ever atone for my sin. How many of you are working your fingers down to the bone, trying to atone for something? Whatever it is, your guilt, your past, your future, your identity. But here's what Jesus says. And I'm going to talk about three things. Number one, Jesus will make everything work together for good one day for those who trust him. This is the gospel. The gospel, as Matt described the gospel, but what he didn't say just was that the gospel simply means good news. That's, that's why we use that shorthand word gospel. That's what it is. It's good news. Here's the good news for those who trust in Jesus to ultimately work this all out. And here's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is that all things will work together for the good of those who, who believe in him. For those who are trusting in Jesus one day to say, can you make everything in Genesis 3 right again? Can you return us to the way it was in chapters 1 and 2? And Jesus says, yes, if you trust in me, there's going to come a day. In fact, you can find all about it in the last book of the Bible where Jesus says, I'm going to make everything new. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to make creation new. I'm going to make this all new. It's going to be this awesome, amazing city. It's going to be the new Jerusalem. Everything is going to be right. 
He says, if you trust in me, I'll, I'll allow you to participate in that. And you get to be part of making everything new. And in fact, I think what happens is when we trust in him now, he begins to put us on a course where we begin to practice this here on earth. And we begin to be part of the redemption of creation here on earth. And we get to be part of the mission of God that essentially says it is good news that Jesus is returning. He's coming back. He's going to finish what he started in Bethlehem. He didn't just come once, he's coming back and he's going to make all things new. Not just some things new, all things new for those who trust in him. This is why we always say, this is the one thing you can do is to trust in Jesus. Everything else he has done, what you can do is trust in Jesus. What else? Well, he's a much better atonement than your way. I would say this. Don't take my word for it. Try it. Trust in Jesus as your ultimate atonement. Not just originally in the starting place of your Christian life, but in all of your life to consistently trust in Jesus as your atonement. This is what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews is a book uh, we, we don't actually even totally know who wrote it. It certainly sounds like one of the other writers in the New Testament, but we don't totally know who wrote it. But what this whole book is about is, is contrasting the old way versus the new way and saying, you know, you thought the old way had awesome parts to it, but let me tell you, Jesus is the new way, and let me show you all the different ways in which Jesus is better than everything else. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, it talks about the sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice that was actually one day of the year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And, and you trusted in that day. You put everything in that day, every kind of guilt, every sin, everything that had ever gone wrong, you, you poured your heart and your trust into that one day. And on that one day, the high priest took a goat and made it a scapegoat. That's where we got the name from. And he placed his hands on the, the head of the goat and said, transferred all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the stuff, and made the goat pay for it. I mean, Peter would just go nuts, right? If it was alive and well in the day. But that's, somebody has to pay. And Hebrews chapter 9 says, you don't have to repeatedly do this anymore. We don't have to put our hands on a goat and transfer our sins onto this goat and make the goat pay. Guess who paid? One price, once and for all. It was Jesus Christ. That's why when Matt described this this morning, that's exactly what the cross represents. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places for every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are not trusting in the repeated sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And when he hung on a cross, and he was in last breath. The book of John actually said, the last thing that Jesus said was, it is finished. That's the last thing we are recorded him as saying. Do you know what he actually said? Prostemai. I know, you're super impressed, right? What does that mean? Paid in full. That's what that means. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, 
He was thinking about your work. He was thinking about all the fruitless effort you've poured in your life to making yourself a better person. He thought of all the works that you were doing that never were enough, the money that you, it was just not enough, the good works that you made that are just not enough. And he said, it is finished. It is paid in full. You don't need to write more checks. They'll just bounce. It's good news, friends. Because this access is to all of us, no matter what kind of work we do. It doesn't matter whether you get paid for your work. It doesn't matter whether you get paid lots for your work. Then no amount of your work will ever earn you favor with God. Jesus already earned that for you and he paid it in full. You do not need to trust in anything else. Lastly, Jesus is a way better identity than your work. And I say this because some of us, including myself, battle this idea of identity constantly. And it's like it's the same serpent. It's the same sermon that's, that's coming after us. It's the same serpent that nips at my heels that say, did God really say he was a better identity? Did he really say that he was going to make all things right? Did he really say that you would have more fulfillment? Maybe, maybe he didn't say that. Maybe he said you could have both. Maybe you could love Jesus, but still put your identity in what you do. Maybe you could love God, but still kind of have your own private atonement. Maybe that's how it works. So you know what? You better get busy working hard. That's the sermon that comes up to us. But here's what Jesus says. Don't you know when you believe that you are the temple of the living God? The temple, again, this is some of this Old Testament imagery, the old story imagery. The temple of God represented the very presence of God on earth. That Jesus, when he comes to earth in the form of a baby boy, is described basically as the word becoming flesh. That word, word becoming flesh or dwelling actually has this connotation of templing. So the temple wasn't just a place anymore. It was in a person, this, this baby boy that was born into the world. And then, by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, we become one with Christ. And that God says, you're now the temple. What does that mean? It means by believing in the atonement of Jesus Christ, believing in him as our identity, as the one worthy of our worship, he then places in us the great honor of being the dwelling place of God. The good news of Christmas is not just that Jesus Christ came in the form of a boy, but then he gave us to be an opportunity to be the indwelling presence of the Savior of the world. It's good news, my friends. And here's how 2 Corinthians puts it, and I'll call the band up at this time. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's an interesting correlation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. He's quoting an, an Old Testament passage or, or an early passage in the story of God. And I will be a father to you, he said, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Here's what the best identity is. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. If you want to know a fulfilling identity, 
to be a child of the God who's in control of everything. It's to be a son and daughter rather than simply a worker, rather than just a servant, rather than just someone who does stuff for God. We're children and therefore heirs of everything that Jesus worked hard to earn. So as we finish off this morning, we have a very special moment. We actually design our service so on on the front end we do kind of a lot of speaking, a lot of telling you what God is saying through His Word. And then on the back half, we really design it so that it can be more about you processing what's going on and what God's speaking to you and, and responding to God. And one of the ways we respond, obviously, is singing. One of the ways we respond is partaking of the special meal. And one of the ways we respond is actually giving. That we want generosity and giving to spring out of what we think God has given to you, not about what we need for you to do. And what we do is we celebrate this meal that's a gift to us. It's a reminder that there was a price to be paid. That this atonement thing that I'm talking about isn't something I just made up. That that this is everything that Jesus did. When they shorthanded the gospel and they said this is the small news of the gospel, what they said is it it comes in the form of blood and, and bread. And this is what they symbolize. The bread symbolizes the actual flesh of Jesus. He dwelt among us and then made us a dwelling place. And the cup says he didn't just come and dwell among us, but he paid a very steep price for the atonement for our sins. And that was with his own blood he shed. How much better is Jesus than anything you can come up with? Can you find someone who would die for you? Can you find someone who would pour their life out for you, who would chase you down to show you how good they are? I can't think of anyone better than Jesus. And so let's respond accordingly, would we?